This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. As we've mentioned previously on the pod, the ACLU is celebrating its centennial in 2020. Founded in 1951, the ACLU of Pennsylvania has been around for 69 of those 100 years. So, in honor of our 100th anniversary, I sat down with Vic Volchek, our legal director, to talk about some of ACLUPA's greatest hits in the courtroom. From free speech to religious liberty to women's rights to criminal justice reform, the ACLU of Pennsylvania has established itself as the premier defender of civil liberties in the Commonwealth, if I do say so myself. This conversation was recorded on March 13th. So, Vic, as you know, and as people who follow the ACLU know, the recent months we've been highlighting the fact that it's the ACLU centennial. Founded in 1920, it's been 100 years, almost to the month. I believe the incorporation of the national organization was in January of 1920. So we've been doing a lot of reflecting. And you have been doing some presentations where you have been going through some of the recent history of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Um, and you've done, you did one for our staff. You did this talk uh, at our centennial event in Philadelphia in February. Before we get into what those greatest hits are, I was wondering if you can just kind of explain why you think it's important for folks to have an understanding of that history. Yeah, so first of all, um, thanks for having me on, and uh, just want to clarify that I'm not going from memory for that whole centennial <laughs> period. Yeah. Um, well, been you've been around. here for 28% of the history, <laughs> is that about right? <laughs> uh, closer to 30%, 30% of the okay. Yeah, yeah, so I think what I find really interesting is that the ACLU's work has had such a profound effect on society, and so much of what we look back on Today, we say, wow, that was just really awesome. And I think there would be large consensus in society that these changes were good, not uniform agreement, but I think most people would say, you know, that, that's really progress. That's something we can and should be proud of. But in the moment when these cases were going on, they were very often not popular. In fact, they were, they were highly criticized. Uh, they may have been thought of as path-breaking, and that in many ways shouldn't be surprising because what the ACLU does is stand up for these very important first principles that are found in the Constitution, and our belief is that you know, liberty and justice are not controversial, but they have to be for all, and that's where we get into trouble, and we'll take these principles and apply them to people or groups or situations that are not particularly popular, use those to make the law, and then everybody says, oh, well, that's a really important principle that should be protected. But in the moment, you know, it's, it's often tough sledding, especially when it comes to public opinion. And that's a distinction that's important about the Constitution. We think of the United States as a democracy the people have their say, majority rule, but there are provisions that ensure that the rights of the minority are also respected and protected. Right. We're, we're a constitutional democracy, and so the vast majority of decisions get made by majority vote through representative government. Um, but there are what I, I like to call first principles enshrined in the Constitution, whether it's the political liberties involving speech, expression, press, religious liberty, uh, assembly. 
and then things like privacy and due process and equal protection and ban on cruel and unusual punishment, that these, the framers believed, were so important that they had to be protected against any incursion, including by a majority. So in that sense, the, the Constitution is an anti-majoritarian document, uh, and it's, it's super important, as I think an awful lot of people are um, really coming to understand today, given the assault that we have seen on civil liberties over the last few years. That's interesting that you say that that's what the framers intended, because the history is that they're always, it's, it's an evolution. The history of free speech, for example, through the 19th century and into the 20th century is not great. It's not strong. In fact, that's part of the ACLU's origin story. People were criticizing the, the government over World War I. They were being incarcerated for it. Right. Um, so let's talk about speech, because I think that's a, it's a good place to start. Um, and and I, as I was skimming through your list of cases that you've been highlighting in these presentations, I've been noticing that is, you know, you're talking just about the ACLU of Pennsylvania and just recent decades, you know, the last three or four decades. Um, I wonder if you can hit some of what you consider the highlights in our in our free speech work. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things that sort of strikes me is that when you're talking about, for instance, um, expressions of dissent, that whether you're looking at the volume of cases or importance of cases, the ACLU of Pennsylvania has been front and center in pretty much every single case. And so when I talk about expressions of dissent, obviously that's in protests taking uh, place in, in public spaces. Uh, you know, every there's been a couple of political conventions in Philadelphia. We were involved in those, the G20. Probably which was in Pittsburgh. Which was in Pittsburgh, and I, I was going to use some choice terms to describe what happened there. But again, <laughs> I mean, we had we had four lawsuits uh, before, during, and after uh, that that uh, conglomeration. Um, CF is the <laughs> short that I would use for what happened. This is there. a free speech zone, so <laughs> right. But you know, but it's also true when it comes to things like um, people being able to put up political campaign lawn signs uh, mm -hmm. before elections. I mean, we, we, we've literally done dozens of those cases. Things like uh, being able to go door-to-door uh, -door on get-out-the-vote efforts. Um, all of these kind of political rights, uh, the ACLU has been front and center. But beyond that, uh, if you just look at the Internet, which is – you know, arguably the greatest free speech medium ever invented, for better or worse, and there, <laughs> there admittedly is some worse these days and need to figure out how to take care of that. But the, the freedom of speech on the Internet actually arose from a courtroom in Philadelphia because we, along with the national office, filed a lawsuit which eventually resulted in a Supreme Court case called ACLU versus Reno, and in that case, they established that the First Amendment enjoys and deserves full First Amendment protection. And but the uh, internet, there's First Amendment protection on the internet, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry, not sure what I said there. <laughs> yeah, the yeah the internet deserves full full First Amendment protection. Uh, students' rights. Uh, we've been incredibly aggressive, especially. Um, on a uh, sort of the new, the newest issues which involve whether schools can regulate what students say outside of school, right? So you could 
punish a student for saying something on the internet from home that is critical of a teacher or a principal and and we've managed to get the courts to draw the line and say no 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 that's that's the parents responsibility schools can tell the parents that the uh, kids may have said something that they didn't like but ultimately that's not the school's role responsibility nor do they have the authority to regulate what those kids are saying outside of school so you know all these really important areas and and the ACLU Pennsylvania has um uh, been front and center. And technology certainly weaves into this discussion. One thing that folks might not think about as a First Amendment issue, but I think is worth noting, is the um, the right to record the police when they are involved in their duties. You know, there's a lot of talk, of course, about criminal justice reform and police reform in particular. Um, and we and a lot of our allies do not trust um, police departments to govern themselves. Um, one of our colleagues has famously said, famously in my opinion, because I say it over and over again, the most effective tool for police accountability is the cell phone in your pocket. So I, I noticed that you had this on your outline about recording the police, and that is an important First Amendment um, issue. Can you yeah, explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and I think it was only within the last two or three years that we had the federal appeals court in a in a pair of companion cases out of Philadelphia that we brought where the uh, court established that you have a First Amendment right to record the police in public. You can't physically interfere in what they're doing, but if you're standing across the street with your cell phone out, you have every right to record uh, what the police are doing. And that was huge because we literally were getting scores of complaints every year about police departments taking steps to prevent people from recording what they're doing. And as you say, that that um, level of accountability is huge because otherwise um, police really um, too often just take the law into their own hands and do whatever they want. And then when somebody contests it, unless you've got that kind of recorded evidence, it's your word against the police and the police are going to win most of the time. So the free speech clause is not the only clause in the First Amendment. Uh, a lot of our members are very passionate about religious liberty. And here in Pennsylvania, there have been at least three cases that we could consider landmark, certainly at the Supreme Court. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, if, if you think about sort of bedrock uh, religious liberty law in this country and and just a caveat that that may undergo a seismic shift with the present Supreme Court. Uh, you know, and to some extent that's already started, but back in the 1960s, there was a case out of the Philadelphia suburbs out of Abington where uh, the case went to the Supreme Court and the court held that you cannot start the school day with uh, readings from the Bible. Um, there was a companion case that involved school prayer um, and, you know, and this isn't kids praying on their own. This is organized, school-led prayer, and the court said that was unconstitutional, so it's been the law of the land for, uh, for well over 50 years now. Uh, and then in the, in the early 1970s, a very famous case called Lemon versus Kurtzman, uh, it actually restricted uh, government's ability to provide public funding to parochial schools. Uh, the case is actually more important not for that result, but because of something called the Lemon Test, which is 
the sort of the legal analysis that the court has employed for most religious liberty cases since then. Again, that's that's under assault. And then in the in the late 1980s, had a case out of Pittsburgh and Allegheny County, ACLU versus Allegheny County, that involved uh, religious displays in public. And so this was the the crash and the menorah and the and the Supreme Court in a five to four decision established the rules that have pretty much governed public displays of um, religious artifacts since then. And again, that's another area that's undergoing some some change from the present Supreme Court. But yeah, and all three of those super important church state cases um, emerged from Pennsylvania and the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Maybe the case that put the ACLU on the map in its early years was the Scopes Monkey Trial, which actually went against uh, Mr. Scopes. Uh, he was found guilty of breaking that Tennessee law, but it altered um, the culture around evolution and um, banning the teaching of evolution in schools. And then lo and behold, 80 years later, you're right in the middle of creationism warmed over <laughs> uh, in Kitzmiller v. Dover, another religious liberty case. Yeah, that um, that was the unquestionably the biggest case I've ever had the, the privilege of, of working on. And, and we, we had a, a, a fabulous team of lawyers and clients and, and experts. But uh, yeah, that was a, a challenge in 2005 to actually filed in 2004, tried and decided in 2005 where the uh, Dover Area School District in York County uh, decided that they were going to try to introduce creationism into the biology curriculum as a counterpoint to evolution, uh, and they did it through something called intelligent design, which was really creationism in disguise, and when you unpacked it, it wasn't a very good or or, 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 or strong disguise, um, but that case literally garnered international attention. Uh, I mean, I remember the f first day of trial thinking that I, I needed to calm my nerves and go in for a run at four o'clock in the morning and running by the courthouse and seeing like 40 television trucks <laughs> outside the courthouse and said, no, this didn't calm my nerves right. at all. But yeah, and we got a We got a tremendous victory in that case. And, and it, it kind of put the nail in the coffin of the intelligent design movement. It didn't stop the anti-evolution movement. But it, but it's 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 an important case because it was a, in my view, a forerunner to what we see today, which is that you had a group of powerful, influential individuals who are advancing a theory as science. Mm. It simply didn't meet the ground rules of science, but it's 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 a fraud to call it science, and yet it's an idea that was embraced by literally millions of people and, and, and teachers around the country um, and finally got its day in court, and the judge ruled this, this may be a lovely idea, but it's not science. Stop calling it science. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today where you have people in power who are saying, don't believe your eyes. Oh. Right. You, you what what we're telling you is true. We're telling you that uh, science uh, doesn't actually support the fact that we have a, a, a climate crisis going on. Uh, and if you can ever get that into a court where you can break down the analysis and really look at the facts and apply discovery, uh, then you can show that this is this is hogwash and 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 truth 
is really truth and honesty is really important when it comes to, to democracy. You said the Dover case effectively put the nail in the coffin of the intelligent design movement. Now, what's interesting about that, we always think of Supreme Court cases as being, they're the landmark cases. That case never went beyond a district court, which is the first level of the federal court system. As a lawyer, as a legal observer, what's your take on how that could be? How is it that a district court in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, iced the intelligent design movement? Yeah, I think you're right in pointing out that that's highly unusual. Uh, and, and the reason there was no appeal is that there was actually an election for school board between the end of the trial and when the court decided uh, uh, the case. And the eight of the nine school board members were turned out, and the new board was opposed to inte- intelligent design. It even included one of our our plaintiffs in the case. And so after we won, the board said, like, this is great. Yeah, we, we agree with this decision and we're not going to appeal. So that's why there was no appeal. I think the reason that it had the impact that it did is that, um, one, to pat ourselves on the back, is that we did a tremendous job laying out what is science, what is evolution, uh, what is intelligent design, and and showing that intelligent design is really a religious idea and does not meet the ground rules of science. And the judge took all that evidence and put it into an amazing 137-page uh, opinion that really is, as I've heard the intelligent design movement say, was a playbook for how to defeat intelligent design. So wherever they wanted to introduce this, they could introduce it. Now, let me just sort of put the brakes on how impactful that was. So it did, I think, kill the intelligent design movement, but intelligent design is part of what is really the anti-evolution or anti-science movement. And that has not been suppressed. I mean, that is still out there. We're seeing that, especially in, in terms of climate uh, change denial these days. So um, so the movement and the sentiment is still out there, but the, that, the, the vehicle of trying to use intelligent design to advance that that I think we pretty much kicked to the curb. So I want to pivot into, and I say this as a non-lawyer, but someone who's been here for 15 years, I think I have this right, cases that are rooted in equal protection and due process. So these are issues that impact particular communities and particular people based on their identity. So women, uh, people of color, LGBTQ and T people. Um, and there have been a number of significant cases in Pennsylvania around these types of issues. Um, I'm looking at your outline. I'm trying to decide where to go because there are so many different uh, uh, threads to pull on. Um, But I certainly think starting with women's rights is a good place to start. And when when you've done these presentations, the first time I heard it, I didn't even know about this um, case about the Pittsburgh Press and the segregated Help Wanted ads. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is a case from, I think, the Supreme Court decided it in 1972. Uh, and it involved uh, the city of Pittsburgh's Human Relations Commission deciding that they were going to apply our anti-discrimination ordinance, which prohibited discrimination based on sex or gender, to the newspaper practice of putting out job ads segregated by gender. So, for instance, they had jobs for men, and they had jobs for women, and they were listed separately. And the commission was arguing that 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 violated the 
anti-discrimination law, city's anti-discrimination law. Uh, The press was arguing this violates our First Amendment free press rights because we're a newspaper. You can't tell us what to put in our newspaper. Um, And it was actually the ACLU of Pennsylvania, which um, where the case came from, which led a contingent up to the national ACLU and convinced them that we should come down on the side of anti-discrimination, mm-hmm. right? So this is one of those tough cases in a sense where we, have, we call them rights in conflict. So that there are good arguments or constitutional arguments um, on both sides. It was the view of the leadership here in, in, in Pittsburgh with the ACLU, which convinced Pennsylvania ACLU leadership that we really needed to stand on the side of anti-discrimination, convince the national that that's a position we should take, and that's the position that the Supreme Court eventually adopted. So, you know, something as simple as the fact that you no longer in the newspaper see ads segregated by gender, much less segregated in any other way, um, comes back to this Supreme Court case that came out of Pittsburgh. And staying with women's rights, in more recent ACLUPA history, there was a case out of Norristown regarding repeated calls to the police and the impact that had particularly on victims of domestic violence. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the case is Briggs versus Norristown. And this is a this is a problem that the legal department had been considering for, for a number of years. We saw uh, a proliferation of municipal ordinances that um, said that if you are a tenant and you so you're in rental housing and you call the police more than twice that the landlord has to evict you from the premises Uh, and this didn't apply if you own the house it only applied to tenants and we're having a hard time sort of figuring out exactly how to go after that when we had which turned out to be a pretty brilliant insight that the impact on domestic violence victims was particularly profound, uh, and that this really was a restriction on people's free speech rights and Mm -hmm. ability to petition the government for redress of grievances. I mean, what could be more important than if you need the police to come help you to be able to call on them? Um, So we brought this case on behalf of a tremendously... Um, I think unfortunate um, woman out of out of uh, Norristown who was a domestic violence victim had twice already called the police on her uh, abusive boyfriend. She had even gone out and gotten a protection from abuse order to prevent this from happening. He violated that order and came to the house and said. I'm staying here, and I know you can't call the police because if you do, you're going to get evicted under this law. And then something happened, and he ended up slitting her throat, and and she had to get life flighted to the hospital. Unfortunately, she's okay. But not only did we file this case and get a tremendous settlement for her— but this is one of the few times in, that I can remember over the last 30 years where this case actually galvanized the legislature, which doesn't pass a whole lot of laws to begin no. with, right, and galvanized the legislature to pass a law saying, no, 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 no Pennsylvania community can pass these laws. These are, these are just really, really bad. So it was, a, you know, it was a pretty impactful decision. We definitely have to talk a little bit about the ACLUPA's work around racial discrimination and racial justice. Um, and I notice here, looking at your notes that you've used for these presentations, that it does seem like we keep coming back to racial profiling by the police over and over and over again. Um, 
what are some of the key cases we've had in Pennsylvania around that issue? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a never-ending problem. I mean, this really goes back to the to the 1980s when the ACLU of Pennsylvania was suing the Philadelphia Police Department for what they were doing back then was sweeps. So now we talk about stop and frisk. Uh, which which is a significant problem, which we're also now suing the city of Philadelphia over. But back in the 80s, there would be a report of a crime, and the police would just go and and literally stop every black male in a in a particular neighborhood. Um, and we filed suit to to end that practice. But it seems like pretty much every decade we have been suing at least the Philadelphia police, but we've also sued. Pittsburgh, we've sued Hanover in York uh, County, we've sued Tinicum Township, which is outside Philadelphia International Airport, um, we're suing the Pennsylvania State Police right now for ethnic profiling, for stopping people of Latino appearance, so, um, you know, and, and for, for, for people of color, this is not surprising, this is their lives. Um, for everybody else, really need to think about just how tremendously um, harmful this is to individuals when you have that mindset of you, not only can you not trust the police, but you fear the police because of the injustice or violence that they can perpetrate for you. So, I, you know, th these cases are tremendously important. Uh, the sad thing is that we continue to need to bring them today. Fighting for uh, the rights of LGBTQ and T people has uh, a long history at the ACLU. Our first case goes back to the 1930s, um, first national case. Um, but we have some more recent history here in Pennsylvania. It's something I've worked on since I started uh, in 2004. At that time, we were um, fighting with the legislature over a state constitutional amendment to ban marriage equality. At the same time, trying to get sexual orientation and gender identity into Pennsylvania's non-discrimination law. And that is something that seemed to really pivot really quickly. Um, I know, I, and I, I don't, I, by no means am I diminishing the fact that it actually took decades of work to get there. Right. But to go from 2005, 2006, trying to stop a state constitutional amendment to where we ended up with the federal DOMA and then the state DOMA felt like a really rapid shift. And you were um, in the front seat for a lot of that. Um, tell us a little bit about that change. Yeah, so I, I actually think that um, you're right that things moved incredibly quickly on the legal front, but that movement was created by incredibly hard work by you know Freedom uh, to Marry Coalition, uh, Evan Wolfson, and, and, and other folks. And they, they basically worked on changing people's hearts and, and minds. Yeah. And, you know, that and that's really what it took. Plus Justice Kennedy. Uh, thank you, Justice Kennedy. Yeah. Um, uh, and so that in 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 2013, we did file suit here in Pennsylvania, Whitewood versus versus Wolf, uh, not Tom Wolf. This was the wolf who was head of the Department of Health at the at the time uh, and, and ended up within a year bringing marriage equality to the state of Pennsylvania uh, a full year before the U.S. Supreme Court extended it to the rest of the country. And I let me just say that I've been blessed to have been involved in a lot of just incredible, wonderful cases, but there is no case that has literally produced dancing and singing and tears of joy and celebrations in the streets 
around the Commonwealth, and that is what Whitewood did here. It just it was it was uh, one of the one of the most remarkable scenes uh, in my lifetime is just to see so much joy and pe- feel people affirmed as people for who they are. Uh, and it's just it, it's 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 wonderful, and I think it's a testament to the ACLU's vision. And you mentioned the movement, which I think is really important because it is such a great example of how you don't wait until the right people are in office. You have to, as you said, lay the groundwork so that then, when the right people are in office, whether it's the courts or in elected office, um, you then have the opportunity to finish the job. Yeah, um, you're, you're changing hearts and minds, as you said. You're changing the culture, um, and then, in this case, we use the law to our advantage, um, and we're able to end up with that victory. Yeah, just, let me just say that I, that's not the only case where we use the law to our benefit. I think we actually do that do that a lot. Oh yeah, but but the winning hearts and minds, I think, is is evident today as we see what's happening to the federal courts becoming more hostile to all of our issues. We see what's happening with the political environment. We're, we're, we are in a time where the courts are not gonna save us. It is up to the people to regain their, their country, to uh, restore government to a place that works for everybody. We could probably go on for another half hour. There are so many things we could touch on, voting rights, students' rights, uh, immigration. I think I want to close, though, with criminal justice reform because I know the legal department here at ACLUPA has been really focused the last few years about and on impact litigation to the criminal justice system. And the ACLU's work on criminal justice goes back a long way. Um, Scottsboro Boys is often cited as maybe one of the first, maybe the first key criminal justice uh, cases that we took. This is in the 1930s in Alabama. Um, Gideon versus Wainwright, which established the right to counsel. But that's a great, Gideon's a great example where (laughs) the court established the right, uh, but it's up to the government and governments to implement it and how government can just continuously fail. Um, Having said that, um, I wonder if you could talk about some of the things that you would like folks to know about right now the legal department is doing around criminal justice reform. Yeah. Um, let me just follow up on your point on, on Gideon. So that is the case that established the right to counsel before you can be sent to, to jail. And in, in, in all candor, um, the, the promise of Gideon, even um, almost 60 years later, has not yet been realized. And Pennsylvania lags as far behind as any state, including the states in the South. For folks who don't know, Pennsylvania is now the only state in the country that provides zero state funding for indigent defense or public defenders, um, essentially no leadership at all. And, and we are all alone at the, at the bottom of that list. And, and very often it shows, not because you don't have hardworking, dedicated public defenders, but they simply don't have the resources to be able to do the job, job that they need to do. So we have been involved in trying to fix indigent defense system, public defenders, for for, um, several decades that I've been here. Um, More recently, um, we have made a a concerted 
uh, effort and and decision that we're putting uh, uh, a lot of resources into criminal justice reform. Um, and and there's there's really two reasons. There's an awful lot of people whose lives are being ruined by being put into cages. And there's these are these are not Ted Bundy. This is not Hannibal Lecter. These are these are people who may have made mistakes, who may have transgressed. Maybe they need some discipline. They don't need to be in a cage forever and ever. And the second part is that disproportionately the people that are being punished are people of color, especially African Americans in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and the impact is not only on the people who are detained, it's on their families, it's right. on their communities, and, and it has had a devastating impact. Anybody who hasn't read uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow should should read that to really understand that that today's in, uh, system of incarceration really is just a continuation of of, of the Jim Crow laws. Um, and so the ACLU has has um, invested in a lot of new staff, uh, non-legal staff, which is wonderful. We have community organizers and communications people and lobbyists and and others to to work with the lawyers to both change hearts and minds and in certain situations where we see a path to be able to bring lawsuits to try to get widespread reform. So, for instance, in the last three years, we've been doing what's called debtor's prison work. So this is, um, sadly, there are literally thousands of people who are sitting in, in jails across Pennsylvania simply because they don't have the money to pay off fines, costs, and fees. And it's very clear under the Constitution that it's illegal to put people in jail because they're poor, but that's exactly what's happening. I don't think a week goes by that we don't end up getting at least a handful of people out of jail on this basis. It's a problem we continue to work on. It's got to be solved county by county, um, but we've already seen some impact. More recently, we've really turned our attention to the whole problem of cash bail, which is that, again, it's the same principle that you're putting people in jail, and they are they're being held in there if they're given bail, not because they're a danger or not because they're a flight risk, because if they had the money, they'd get out, but simply because they don't have the money, so they're in there because they're poor. Um, so we have now filed suit against the bail magistrates in Philadelphia. We are preparing another lawsuit against the Western Pennsylvania County that we'll be filing in the in the near future. Um, we're also looking at uh, things like the overuse of um, detainers and probation situations. Uh, we're looking at some of the crazy drug laws, um, especially the arrests around marijuana, which, you know, African-Americans are five or six times more likely to be arrested for marijuana. And, and this is a drug that in what in close to a dozen states is now legal. And yet you've still got people being arrested for it here in Pennsylvania. So, yeah, I mean, criminal justice reform is not sexy. Uh, you know, help, helps a lot of people who um, are are marginalized in our communities. Um, but I don't think there's anything more impactful that we've ever done. I mean, this is just could help just a huge, huge number of people who really need it to help get their lives back on track. All right, Vic. Well, thank you for taking the time. I I almost feel like we've just scratched the surface. It feels like there's so much more to well, I think talk it, about. Maybe, I think it's because we have two. scratched the th surface. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Thanks, Vic. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Andy. So there you have some of ACLU PA's greatest hits. Thanks to Vic Volchek for his time and for the discussion.
Our work in defending civil liberties in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic continues. For all of the latest developments, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and check out our webpage on all of the work we've been doing. That link is aclupa.org slash COVID-19. That closes episode 42. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.